Welcome to the Illuminate Faith Podcast. My name is Dave Exley, and with me is... Isaac Mundy. And Doug Peck. And we are glad to be back here for the triumphant return of the podcast here. It's been a a busy time for the last uh, number of weeks here in uh, summer months, but as we head towards the fall, we're wanting to ramp up and uh, and get back into things. So uh, you'll be catching episodes uh, every other week from us a couple of times a month. And uh, this particular episode we're really excited about. Uh, Had the chance to, uh, Doug and I were both at the Skylight Festival a few weeks back uh, and had the opportunity uh, to, to to spend some time with a number of different uh, great theological minds and leaders within the church. Uh, and today uh, we want to highlight a conversation that I had with uh, with John Bell from the Iona community. Um, he was at the Skylight Festival for the weekend and uh, on the uh, Friday night had the chance to talk about humor uh, in the Bible, humor in our faith, and uh, just had a very rich discussion uh, with him. So uh, we're so glad that uh, that you're here for this, uh, this episode and... Uh, I guess we'll just, with that, we'll, we'll lead into the conversation with John Bell, and then we'll catch you on the other side with, uh, with some thoughts uh, from uh, the rest of the crew here. Enjoy. So I'm here with uh, John Bell, and John is a, a hymn writer, a speaker, and a, a minister with the Church of Scotland, and uh, we so appreciate you spending some time with us, John. Not at all. I love coming to Canada. Well, here we are at the Skylight Festival, and uh, you spent some time uh, last night uh, talking with us about uh, about humor uh, in the Bible. Uh, and I wonder if you want to sort of share, you know, what why did you sort of pick that as a as a passion? How long have you been looking into to this, and uh, what have you explored in the past uh, while as it relates to humor in the Bible? Well, I suppose it was the lack of it which made me wonder whether there was anything funny in the Bible. Uh, being a record of human affairs, one expects from time to time that there'll be a kind of comical situation or people might say something. And I, re- I remember after a while thinking, it's maybe the way in which we hear it. You know, because for most people, the Bible is read, and that's the intention, you know, the, for, for the scripture, it's read publicly, it's public truth. But it's usually read in the dullest possible way. You know, it's like listening to someone, at least in, in Britain, reading the instructions for getting rid of your refrigerator according to the regulations of the European community. And 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 I, and I think we, we sometimes come to the Bible with a fairly blinkered mind. We don't expect to be surprised. We don't expect to meet characters we've never heard of before. And yet here's this rich compendium of poetry and of prophecy and of poem poems and proverbs and stories. And when I went to the Bible with the question, where in you is there humour, then some things will come to begin to come quite clear. And the same is true particularly of the Gospels. I mean, there's, there's a lot in the Old Testament, freaky things. But the Gospels, you have these lovely ways in which Jesus um, speaks to people. And we do not know exactly his intonation, whether it was a twinkle in his eye. But uh, if you allow for the possibility that he changes his tone, then some things become transparent. I mean, one of the things I mentioned last night is that the wedding feast that came of Galilee, where there's this funny phrase uh, which comes after Mary asks the question, um, uh, I think the wine has run out, and he says, my time has not yet come. Now, you can take this as a very serious statement by a kind of anemic nun talking to a rather scrawny, you know, prophetic figure, or you can take it as a woman who's in her late 40s or 50s, whose son has still to be launched onto his messianic career and who's a full-blooded Jew and who's got lots of friends. 
And Mary, in frustration, perhaps, says that Jesus, the wine has run out. And he says, Mother, for goodness sake, give me a minute. Now, the pe people who studied St. John's Gospel say that my time has not yet come can be as much an expression of uh, frustration as anything else. But it's the way that we hear that which either allows us to feel that there is humour there or, or not at all. And I, it's it's interesting to think about that. So you don't adhere to the, the stern-faced, uh, serious oh. Jesus face that uh, we often see. No, no. I think that we. I think that uh, one of the jobs that the that some churches and I, and I, you know, I don't fling blame about, but one of the things that the church has done is to kind of emasculate Jesus. And and in some of the work I do, I just try to allow people not to believe what I believe, but to look at the evidence. And it's it's partly because from childhood we've been led to believe that Jesus, his primary attribute was being nice, and gentle, and kind, and pure, and all these things. But laughter or anger are things that we do not associate with them, or the ability to rile people, and and we bypass. You know, you you go in these dire hymns from the birth of Jesus to the death. You know, these phrases like "from the cradle to the cross" or "the child born to die," which just imitates the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, where. 33 years of life go past in a comma, born of the Virgin Mary, comma, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And it's the 33 years for which he comes, and it's the death at the end of them, which would not have been caused unless of the way in which he lived his life in the middle. And if you look at that life, then you see a life in which certainly there was a great deal of provocation of other people. There are eight instances before the crucifixion where attempts are made in his life, or where it says explicitly they took up stones to throw at him, or get out of the road because Herod wants to kill you. Now, you know, I never saw these for years and years and years, but the evidence is all there. Um, you, you ask, you know, what kind of women did Jesus uh, go about with? Oh, well, either virgins or prostitutes. You know, there's nothing in between. And then you discover that, you know, he sees in women models of faith, of generosity, in a way that he never sees them in men. Uh, we, we have this notion of you know, God's like the good shepherd who looks the lost lamb, but we don't think of God as being the woman who loses a coin and goes and searches for it. But, although that's the next parable in Luke's Gospel to the parable of the of the, the sheep. So there's a whole there's a whole range of things, you know, the, the femininity, or not the feminine, the female nature which is in Jesus as much as the masculine nature, and the anger and the provocativeness and the ability to break the law consistently which is to do with the way in which he he takes the Sabbath commandment which has become a restrictive thing and says this is meant for liberation and so turns a, a whole tradition on its head to the blessing of some and to the annoyance of others and these are just some of the facets which I think have been eclipsed maybe because in some churches and I won't say all but in some churches we've looked at Jesus through the eyes of Paul so we're interested in the the theology of the cross and of the process of salvation and redemption and all the rest of it. And Paul, you know, really doesn't know much about Jesus, but he's never met him, and he's only heard of second-hand accounts. But Paul never mentions any of his miracles, any of his parables, any of his sayings. Um, that's not his job. But if you look at Jesus only through Paul's eyes, you miss out. This is a dynamic, provocative, gracious, gregarious, funny Saviour. If you if you only look at Paul, you miss, you just miss out so much. 
I wonder if, you know, it's, I'm mindful of in our preaching in the church, and, and so often, maybe far too often, I, what I see is preachers that, uh, that tell jokes on Sunday morning. And, and what I hear from you is that maybe we need to dive deeper into the text and pay more attention to it because there's much more as far as humor and other emotions that we need to pull out of that. Um, how might we use it in our preaching? Well, I, mean, I, I, I think that, you know, when I say there's humour in the Bible, there is plenty of humour there. But I don't think it's a matter of trying to find a joke a week. And I don't think we try to make Jesus out to be God's funny man. But I do think we have to 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 reimagine what he is like in order to make him more accessible. It's interesting that in the developing world, you know, you look at pictures of Je- pictures of Jesus. He's not dressed in spotless white. And in Africa, he's he's dressed in red which is the colour for a holy man. And when you see him casting out a demon, there's an energy in his body which transmits. Most of our icons are either of the baby in the mother's arms or the saviour on the cross. Both are passive. And if you have these passive images all around, and, you know, add the ones about him having little children come to him and holding a lamb in his arms, if if you add to these um, songs which talk about a sweet Jesus or a nice Jesus and Jesus, I love you and you love me and we're as happy as happy can be. There is nothing for dynamic discipleship. And so people end up in some some churches, you know, being a kind of pastor who tries to please a congregation by giving them a laugh a minute. Rather than pointing to the humour in Christ, oh yes, but pointing to this, this as being somebody whose life was intentionally at risk and who embraced these risks, and who was a dynamic and unsettling presence who attracted people, even those that didn't like him, who attracted people. And never sometimes get the feeling that Jesus has been attractive. You know, you, you think of one of the, last week when I was working in Iowa, people are little, I think, uh, uh, taken aback when I questioned the image they had of um, of Matthew. Because everybody thinks, well, Matthew Matthew would be very... Um, Guilt, guilt-ridden, guilty. Oh, guilt, guilt, guilty. And he would be, but you know, middle-aged or older, and he would he would live on his own. He'd be a social isolate. None of that is in the Bible. None of that. It just says that Jesus met a tax collector called Matthew and went to his house. So he could have been a hunk. You know, it could have been a 24-year-old guy who worked out, who had a whole string of girls who would love to go out with him for an evening, who enjoyed making money, who was in every club in the, in the town. And Jesus sees Matthew, who is smiling, and thinks, Oh, Matthew, I'd love you to smile for the kingdom of heaven. I'd love you to be my disciple. Now, we cannot conceive of that. We'd rather have this old boy that nobody wants, you know, rather than, rather than a dynamic young person who was who was asked to follow Jesus, not because of his guilt, but because of his potential. Now, this, you know, I think that these these uh, suppositions we have just have to be turned on their head. They belong to a previous era, and thank God we're now in the 21st century, and we can let go of some of the dross that's been hanging about the church for far too long. <laughs> Well, and, and speaking about that, that's hanging over the church for a long time, obviously you travel a lot all around the world, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask a question about uh, places that you've been to where you would say, ah, I see that there's hope for the church. You know, I think that many people are searching for, and we see glimpses of it, uh, but with you and your travels, I'm wondering if uh, if you have some stories of hope where you've been to a, you know, an event or you've seen a community of faith that just seems to get it. Yeah, well, uh, I think that we, we do carry a lot of baggage from the past and it's not everyone who's wanting to give it up but 
I could, t- I, mean, I could tell a story from every country I, I've worked in, but let me just tell one from from Australia. And this is a, a lady who's telling me about her previous uniting church, your sister church in Australia. A congregation of 30, all of them people who are older, over 65. And when the pastor goes, they don't think they'll get anyone else. But the denomination gives them a, a fairly young woman who's in her 30s uh, for Sunday and one day pastoral work. And after about four weeks, she says, no, uh, I think we should meet next Sunday and we'll talk about the future. So these people gather after worship to talk about the future and nobody says a thing. They expect her to say, I've read the sign of the times, it's time we closed. She doesn't. She waits for them to speak. They don't speak. So she says, "Okay, I'm really serious. We have to talk about the future. You've been here. I haven't. And I want to hear what we want to do. So four weeks later, they have another meeting after the service and everyone's there. And then people begin to speak. And this guy says... You know, maybe we have to close. And she says, why? And he says, well, there's nobody, nobody lives here. We're in an industrial estate. No houses are here. And we're not going to attract people. And she says, well, what if you close? And somebody says, well, um, we could get money for the building. And she says, and if you get money for the building? And someone says, well, we could build a new church. And someone else says, why build another? There are plenty of churches. And someone says, well, there's a housing area nearby, part social, part private housing, we could go there and we could hire the community centre. So to cut a long story short, this lady says to me, we shut the church, we sold it, we opened up uh, in the community centre. She says, we don't open on Sunday morning at 11. We meet on Wednesday night at half past six. We don't begin with the praise band or with an organ playing. We begin with a meal for an hour. And then we spend about an hour and a half uh, doing worship in different ways from what we've ever done before. A lot more conversation, a lot more activity for the kids. And we close about 9, 9.15. And she said, when we moved there with 30 people, now, after two years, we've got 110, many of whom have never been to the church before. And then she says, and let me tell you, John, these are the happiest hours I've ever spent in the church. And she was the previous organist from the old building, and she was 83. Now, you know, when people say that old people can't do new things, you know, Abraham and Sarah and Elizabeth and Zechariah are instances where God expects the old to allow the new thing to happen. And that, I think, is the vocation which we have to encourage in congregations who think they're past it. They can do new things. That's great. Appreciate that story. So what's uh, what's next for you? What are you currently in the midst of, uh, of working on outside of traveling all over the place? <laughs> oh, well, I'm doing a wee book... Uh, uh, of, of material which is which has been written for a while uh, will be called I'm taking this uh, this line from a, a, a previous statesman I don't know if you'd really call him a statesman but he used to be in the US government and the book is going to be called Known Unknowns and and it's for small churches in rural places or in cities where there are not many people um, so they don't have access to or maybe want to have a new book with a whole lot of new tunes and it's about 100 songs which go to tunes people already know but which allows people which will allow people to sing about a dynamic jesus and which allow people to sing about social justice which might not have been possible if they if they hold to the old texts apart from that immediately i'm going to have three days off in toronto and i'm going to love it Uh, and if there's a chance i will swim in lake ontario off Toronto Island. Uh, I think it's one of Canada's hidden secrets. And if the water's warm, it's just a luxury. 
compared to the west of Scotland. <laughs> That's great. Well, best of luck with your three days off and uh, and with your future projects. I know that uh, that your music and your words, you've been such a blessing uh, to so many people. I'm sure many of our listeners here. And so thank you for taking time today and thank you for all that uh, that you do with your work in the church. It's very kind of you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Well, what a great uh, great conversation, and uh, that's something that I could listen to over and over again. Uh, there's so many rich uh, thoughts that uh, that John shared with us there. I, I want to sort of uh, dip back into early in the conversation with him, uh, where he he just talks about uh, uh, you know the, the, that a lot of people uh, are of the mindset that Jesus's primary attribute was being nice, and and I love that John is uh, is pushing at that and and trying to get us to see past that because I think that we see that far too often and I think it certainly comes from our you know if you grew up in the church that was the way that you saw Jesus uh, early on was this this nice guy uh, and you go around to most churches and the, the disposition of the Jesus stained glass windows and pictures that we see uh, are often of a very nice uh, savior uh, but if you've been reading the you know and preaching at all this summer or reading the the lectionary readings uh, what we encounter uh, this summer uh, in particular and and many summers and throughout the year is is a very different Jesus so I, I wonder if we want to talk about that a bit this this idea of the primary attribute of Jesus as being nice and and just the problem that uh, that that uh, that emerges from looking at things you know in, figures within scripture and 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 misreading them and, and what harm that can do to us in in uh, in the church yeah and I think it's interesting in terms of this whole image of Jesus because when it gets really one-dimensional it's a problem and whether it's sort of the dour Jesus of centuries past, or even kind of the hippie Jesus of the 70s and 80s United Church, like as as great as that image is, you know, we probably need to diversify a little bit in terms of that and and explore kind of the different parts of who Jesus is, because there is that humor there, I think, that he used to like try and subvert uh, different ideas within society, like, you know, like when you think of the camel going through the needle and... uh, and I know that, that he talks, too, about, like, uh, um, different things, like uh, aspects of Jesus' anger and, and different things like that. And I remember this one crucifix in a community that I was worshiping in that was totally different than any of the, the crucifixes I'd ever seen. Like, a lot of the time you see this image of Jesus on the cross, and it's almost like the expression on his face is like, he just opened up this letter of about a bad tax return or something like that. <laughs> and uh, But this one really showed... Like, A, Jesus' anger. He was um, naked. Um, so you saw Jesus' penis. Like, it was all of these different things uh, about Jesus that were kind of taboo, but kind of opened things up for me. And I think that it's important to be able to see the anger and the humor and even Jesus' junk in terms of figuring out, like, who is Jesus? Jesus is this real human person that, uh, that we're called to be in relationship with. You always take us to an interesting place there, Isaac, and, and so now we've got that image in our minds here, and, and yeah, let's let loose. What and, and I thank you for that image because because there is a realness factor that we're supposed to that we're called to uh, to ponder when when we think of that doctrine of Jesus as hundred percent human, simultaneously hundred percent divine. Uh, and, and and what does that mean? And what are we leaving out? And, and and what are we, you know, wanting to cover up? So thank you for that realness, Isaac. Yeah. 
I, I think, you know, I appreciate John talking about the fact that I think that this has kind of taken us down this this path, you know, and you think about artwork uh, primarily, you think about, he mentioned, you know, these dire hymns that we hear so often, uh, even from a theological perspective of, you know, within our, uh, you know, the Nicene Creed, uh, the Apostles' Creed, uh, they don't reference, even in our own United Church Creed, we, do, we don't reference, you know, those years of Jesus, you know, that are so important, that express that emotion uh, that really push us towards a very simplified uh, version of uh, of Jesus, which does maybe you know uh, prompt us to move to a place where we we take it a little too too seriously. Um, and the more we open up Scripture and and dive into the depths of the Gospels and the the narratives from the Hebrew Bible, my gosh, like there is so much uh, in there that uh, that just reflects. Uh, anything but you know a nice image of God, but reflects a God that uh, that uh, you know experiences and and God's people that experience the range of of human emotions. There, one of them being being humor, which we so often don't like to to look at. Um, I think that yeah, that might be one of the issues that uh, that is problematic for our church, and the reason why it's so refreshing to hear John talk is that. Um, it pushes us to a place where we don't take things as seriously uh, anymore. And I think that when you think about um, those that take their faith too seriously, um, I think about fundamentalists, doesn't matter whether you're, you're Christian or whether you represent, you're part of another faith tradition, those who are a little too serious uh, about their religion. That's not to say that we can't, you know, sort of enjoy the humor and, and also be serious about what we believe. But at the same time, if we're not able to laugh, then it, it pushes us to some pretty dark places. Bringing balance, yeah. The, the, it's it's really powerful to hear him talk about how we've really taken this thing called faith in Christianity and the life of Jesus, and, and we look at it too much between uh, uh, Paul's perspective. That's who's, who's, you know, lovely guy, but pretty serious guy. <laughs> so. Yeah, he, he talked about that, about how we, we maybe look at Jesus too much through the eyes of, of Paul. And I know that that's that's a movement uh, in the United States. Uh, you know, Tony Campolo and some others that have tried to emphasize the, you know, moving ma- back towards the Gospels uh, as opposed to, you know, as the evangelical church in the United States, as opposed to looking t- primarily at Paul uh, and leaning on Paul for you know their theological beliefs, but returning to the Gospels. And and when you do return to the Gospels, I think you find a, a, a much different. Uh, perspective on our faith and and one that perhaps does prompt us to go not that Paul wasn't you know humorous I mean there's all those points where it's like you know hey you know what is it uh, in uh, in Philemon I think where he's talking as if it's like he's trying to make the the letter reader believe that uh, he's around the corner with a stick waiting for him you know like or I forget what uh, what letter that's in but uh, but anyway uh, yeah I think there's some humor in Paul as well but those narratives, uh, those uh, um, stories that we read in, in the Gospels, uh, certainly the, uh, the non-canonical Gospels have some great humorous uh, stories in there about the childhood Jesus, but, uh, but yeah, maybe we need to move away from Paul a little bit more. Yeah, and it's interesting too, like uh, when, I, when I heard him talking about that, the one thing for me that I was thinking is, I don't know like if we're in huge danger in the United Church of 
of being too focused on like the the story of the passion and things like that like i'd say probably in some ways we have shifted over the years uh in, towards more focus on the stories of the gospel which i think is healthy to be able to round things mm-hmm. out a, a bit more uh but one person i was thinking about i don't know if you guys have uh have heard about uh, james martin He's a, yeah. a priest, uh, like a, a Roman Catholic priest. He but was Stephen. Uh, Col- he is Stephen he, Colbert's priest. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. He goes on the Colbert Report all the time. But he wrote this book called "Between Heaven and Mirth," um, and it's interesting because he talks about how humor can even be something that we need to be able to like enter into some of the darker places of life. Because like he's pretty like concentrated in terms of the. Um, I, I guess the the death and the resurrection of Christ as being sort of the central part of his faith. But he's like a really funny guy, I find. And uh, a lot of the time he's kind of more deadpan on the Colbert Report. But some of the stuff that he has in this book, it's uh, Between Heaven and Mirth. It's, it's a good read in terms of uh, um, bringing the funnies to uh, <laughs> Christian life. I couldn't help it when I was listening to John at uh, the Skylight Festival. I was thinking about my own experience uh, when I was uh, studying at uh, Huron College uh, in London, Ontario, uh, here in London. Uh, shout out to uh, all of my Anglican uh, friends uh, from, from Huron there. Um, it's funny, we, you know, so we had a, a daily ritual for, you know, morning prayer. And uh, we would gather uh, together uh, each morning quite, quite early. Um, and midweek, we'd do our um, community Eucharist uh, service. Uh, and so we'd have our daily readings and things. And everybody would have, you know, all the theology students would be um, scheduled to read or to, uh, to lead, uh, you know, a BCP service or things like that. And it just seemed like Every single time my name was listed uh, as scripture reader, it was like, just get ready for it. There is going to be some crazy piece of scripture. You know, of course, when you step away from those Sunday readings in the Revised Common Lectionary, you get some crazy things. So I, I'll, one of them that uh, I remember from like second year, uh, I get up and the first line I have to read, and thankfully I've read it in advance, so I'm not sort of going in cold, but I open up in scripture by, by, uh, by reading a letter from Paul and the opening line is, now concerning virgins. <laughs> so here I am amongst, you know, the student body and other professors, and that's my opening line. Uh, another one was reading uh, the, um, uh, the narrative about the, the loose woman from Proverbs, you know, which if you go back and, and read that, it's pretty provocative. It's something that uh, will make anybody blush. Uh, and so it seemed like every single time that I was reading scripture, there was something. And it, it prompted us to to wonder, you know, are there sections of the Bible that rather than finish, because of course our practice there was to end the readings with um, usually in, in the... Um, uh, not in the Book of Common Prayer tradition, but in the Book of Alternative Services, in a morning prayer service, you'd often, the traditional way is to end by saying the word of the Lord, and then everybody responds, thanks be to God. And and we decided that maybe there are some readings from Scripture that we just need to end with the word of the Lord? <laughs> it's sort of more of a more of a question mark. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's uh, I talked about this a few weeks ago, actually, in church about, you know, just this concept of handing Bibles to people in, in grade three and, uh, and how dangerous that is to do that because it really speaks to just our disconnectedness to what actually is is being said in scripture and what the implications of these stories are and in some cases it'd be like handing a Richard Pryor you know stand-up uh, routine or something like that to uh, or Eddie Murphy or whatever you know crass uh, uh, stand-up comedian you can think of maybe Louis CK or something like that handing that uh, to uh, to somebody in grade three so um, 
Yeah, he, he prompted me to go there. We often miss those those points because often on Sunday mornings we're reading from Scripture and it's so serious and it prompts us to read in that way where it's it's kind of like, you know, reading uh, the instructions for throwing out your refrigerator. Yeah, for sure. And it's... Uh and it's interesting trying to think about like what do we do with humor in the in the context of worship and I think for me like it's a good reminder because like when you guys were talking about almost like having the the joke a week and stuff like that like sometimes I can get into the mentality of how am I going to keep people interested or entertained or things like that but then there's this kind of other aspect of humor that I I think almost helps to um, allow us to get at different power structures and, and be able to turn them on their heads sort of like when you were talking about the Colbert report and like when you think of uh, like I really like watching uh, the clips from John Oliver um, oh, yeah. the last week uh, tonight, last week yeah. tonight because I, I find he really gets in depth using humor um, into situations of, of like inequality a lot of the time in the states but but all over the place too and I think that uh, there's something about using humor to be able to um, to confront systems of power that I think are really important for for who we are as, as a people of faith and uh, but that's like a really important route because sometimes we're a bit too earnest I think in the United Church about our approach to uh, around issues of justice and obviously this is uh, like the social gospel is really at the heart of so much of our history but sometimes we just take ourselves so seriously and I think we don't get our message across because we kind of come off as a bit pious in terms of uh, the way we approach some of those things or that's been kind of my take I don't know if yeah, it's it's like you know. I know that anybody who's you know works in the United Church will say that uh, when it comes to music, you know, there is this huge vetting machine for like it, deciding whether something is acceptable or not uh, within the context of worship. You know, are the words just right? And we we were so skeptical about uh, uh, you know those common sort of like uh, popular praise songs that are often shared in other and and lifted up in other uh, communities and the words that we share, the things that we do in worship. You know, we, we are extremely serious about it, and, and uh, I wish we would dial that back a little bit because there are times where it's just, you know, at, at General Council last year, I, one of the greatest experiences, you know, we had over the course of that uh, event was actually beer and hymns that we did. I forget which night it was, but uh, here we are in a pub together. We've got, you know, a moderator, former moderators, you know, future moderators uh, sitting in that room. And we were handed, I was uh, part of the music team for that, and we were handed these books with really like old, outdated, I mean, it was probably like the word straight out of the blue hymnal. And, uh, and here we were singing this. And uh, I couldn't help but think, isn't this wonderful? Because we all get that, you know, the atonement theology and some of the language being used in this is just wrong. But there's just something fun about gathering together and singing that way. And uh, it kind of speaks to the fact that, uh, yeah, far too often, like those, those opportunities are few and far between where we're able to just sort of like say, okay, it's all right that we sing these songs and stuff. Um, it's fine because we do take it a little too seriously, which uh, limits uh, our ability maybe to make deeper connections with people and really, really enjoy one another's company. When I hear you bring that up as an example, Dave, it makes me think that um, you're doing it in a place that's a very, I don't want to say normal, but but a very, um, it's a place where people identify with. People have experiences of being at the pub. Um, more and more, it seems like when, when we have made... Uh, 
sanctuaries a, a place of ultimate seriousness and as John Bell says not enough humor uh, we're not really reflecting authentic life and authentic living and authentic living space uh, somewhere over the years where I've just noticed more and more people really you know the average person really desiring an authentic story seems to be at funerals where where more and more people who don't have experience of church are going into church for a funeral to honor someone's life and when they hear a funny story about an individual they bust a gut and it feels good and there's something authentic to the worship service uh, i'll just uh, it's gotten to the point with me where i'll just say to a family that kind of looks uncomfortable with you know planning a church service i'll just flat out say listen people really do enjoy hearing the funny side of your loved one because that is a significant part of them. And I'll never forget this, uh, this one youngest son of seven, uh, his mo whose mother was just a, a riot of a person uh, in her mid-90s, recently passed away. He says, to, he says, you know, I once asked her, why'd you have seven kids, mom? And she said to me, well, if the pill hadn't been invented, we would have had a lot more than that. And I'm just like, I, I just said to him, you got to tell that story. You got to tell that story from the pulpit and people need to hear a real story of your yeah. mom. And, uh, and, and of course, it, it was just so appreciated and it, and it added to the worship because it's, it's an authentic part of living. So a few weeks ago in, in, in worship, you had a great experience. It was just a spontaneous moment. And so, you know, we're dealing with this section of scripture from prayer and uh, about prayer. And so we were talking about prayer. And uh, at our uh, 1030 service, our more traditional service, uh, I had clips that I was going to be playing, you know, just shortly after my intro. Uh, and it was these clips of, you know, Homer Simpson praying. Because, uh, you know, there's just some <laughs> great stuff from, from the Simpsons. And so, I always, you know, open up my prayer with, you know, the, the prayer for illumination or open up my sermons with the prayer for illumination. And uh, so anyway, I had started that and the person doing the projection, you know, uh, was kind of clicking ahead uh, on my slideshow presentation. And so you just hear me saying, you know, let us pray. And then there's that pause in between, and all you hear then is Homer Simpson saying, Dear Lord. <laughs> and, and it goes into this, and I'm like having to pull back the reins. And nope, that's not what we want right now. It was this this irreverent moment in the context of church. But I can't tell you just to see the looks on the faces of those that were gathered for worship here and what that did just to have this spontaneous moment where we could laugh together, where we could... It actually made for a better service, you know, it really just changed even though it gave away what i was going to be heading towards uh it, it just made it so much better and you know like that's like i feel like that's really cool dave because in some ways that allows people to have a language to speak to god where they can speak as they are rather than like i feel like a huge barrier to prayer is that sometimes we feel like we have to speak in a in a kind of a tone or a language whether it's on our own or whether it's when we're in church but if like we actually want to have a relationship with god that is authentic and um um meaningful like i want to be able to bring all of myself to god which includes my sense of humor which includes being able to get angry at god mm -hmm. which includes uh, just all of who i am and so that's probably liberating for folks and probably like what you were talking about in terms of the funeral too, Doug, of being able to 
to bring all of who they were to that experience rather than just feeling like, okay, I must be formal, I must not cry, I must not laugh. It's, it's really allowing ourselves to be ourselves with God. Like, that's so important. And Scripture gives us permission to do that because you, you can't open the Psalms and not find the whole range of human emotions there. And if that language can be, you know, uh, carried to God, then, then, then why not? You know, like, why, why are we sort of thinking that we're, we're any different? Um, you know, when we, when we, you know, share our anger, when we, you know, I mean, I've, I've always said, you know, I think that when it comes to, to prayer, some of the most authentic prayers, the ones that contain four letter words, a lot of four letter words. And so, but you know, those are the, the prayers that aren't welcome in church on Sunday morning. And maybe we need to be, maybe that's, what's killing us. I think is that we, we have sort of, we're demanding of people that they be a little too, you know, pious and, and so like, and that's connected to our identity too. I think as ministers that people associate you with that. And so when they find out that, Oh, you drink beer and you like to smoke a cigar and have some scotch every now and again. And, and I mean, it's really, that doesn't, you know, connect for me uh, as it relates to uh, to your chosen vocation and and fortunately i think we're seeing some of that change you know people are pushing uh, you know at, at the edges of that and we we see a lot of you know leaders within the church that are that are giving us permission uh, to do just that uh to to challenge that that image that that our society has i i was reading go ahead doug you had a thought oh I, well i just very quickly i I, I'm often reminded of how Zen Buddhism has informed my, my sense of Christ's teaching and, and really placing high the need for spontaneity in your faith and in your uh, sense of spiritual um, exploration. And, and to me, it's always informed what I hear Christ talking about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, it's upon us. Uh, embrace it as a child. No preconceived notions. Uh, don't... don't um, bring yourself to it it's it's about you and the experience and and there's something about laughter uh and there's something about humor where if something's really funny you have to laugh you have to let go you can't hold back it that is it is it is to me the uh the definition of spontaneous because it's it is just this cleansing feeling where you're not thinking about the future you're not worrying about what you did in the past you are so in the moment which i believe is is what christ teaches us about the kingdom I, after uh, talking with John, I came across this uh, this quote from Reinhold Niebuhr that I thought uh, fits so well, and, and uh, maybe we can sort of wrap up with this. But uh, Niebuhr, you know, once said, you know, humor is in fact a prelude to faith, and laughter is the beginning of prayer. Uh, he said, the saintliest men frequently uh, have a humorous glint in their eyes. They retain the capacity to laugh at both themselves and at others. Uh, to meet their the disappointments and frustrations of life, the irrationalities and the contingencies with laughter is a high form of wisdom. And it's funny because I was reading that again and thinking about uh, what's happening politically in the United States right now. And I think what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of people that are extremely serious. And I look at somebody like Donald Trump, and I'm not sure that uh, that he is someone that uh, that has that capacity uh, to, to, you know, to sort of laugh and, and enjoy life and that. And that's the one concern that I have, that, uh, that there's far too many people that are so ratcheted up, that there's that tension that exists uh, there, um, which is all over the world. It's not, not exclusive to the United States. Uh, we see it here in Canada. And the more we can sort of like just loosen up a bit, 
take a deep breath and be able to laugh and and perhaps that's the beginning of 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 movements that will change the world is is the beginning is is being able to laugh what you're saying is less Trump and more Reinhold then I'm <laughs> totally down with that absolutely I, I think well said and, and I just picture uh, my uh, my professor from Queens Theological College uh, the Reverend Dr. Tracy Trothens just just loving right now that we're bringing up uh, a little bit of uh, Niebuhr there we go. Well, with that, uh, we will uh, we'll sign off. And uh, guys, uh, enjoy the next uh, few weeks or so. We'll look forward to uh, connecting uh, with you and everyone else uh, sometime soon. 